I'm your host, Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode focusing on driving, I'll cover topics from women applying makeup while behind the wheel of two tons of moving metal, how turning right on red around since 1980 hasn't reached every driver in America, airplane cockpits, prop comic carrot top, and the planet Uranus or Uranus, either way you pronounce it, it's an odd name. So jump aboard the train, get a little insane, getting inside Berg's brain. This episode of Berg's Brain is brought to you by the new wonder drug, Cytofectia. If you're one of millions of prescription drug users who get insidious side effects from all the prescription meds you're taking, Cytofectia is the pill for you. So many of us have had a loved one take a prescription drug for acne and unfortunately die from a painful side effect like rectal bleeding. I was at a recent funeral for a friend that this happened to. As I walked by the open casket, I thought, gosh, what a horrible way to go. But gee, his complexion did look a lot better. So pop a side effect to you and no more headaches, nausea, constipation, dizziness, drowsiness, vomiting, diarrhea, dry mouth, rashes, dermatitis, dysentery, arrhythmia, varicose veins, darkened stool, hemorrhoids, rectal bleeding, or those nagging suicidal thoughts. The only side effect from taking Cytofectia is the urge to file a lawsuit for false and misleading claims, but hey, that's a hell of a lot better than hemorrhoids. So ask your doctor for Cytofectia, a Johnson & Johnson and Johnson & Johnson and Johnson & Johnson product. That's right, we've got six Johnsons and that other lame-ass Johnson company only has two. Hell, we've got so many Johnsons working around here, we don't know what to do with all of our Johnsons. Play us away, Peapod. <laughs> morning, I pull out of my driveway on my way to work, and you know those early mornings or twilight times in the evening when the sun is at a point in the sky when the glare coming through your windshield literally makes it impossible to see? You can't see a goddamn thing. You're basically driving blind. It's usually only for like two or three seconds, but there's nothing you can do, so you just drive and pray there's no car, no person, no animal, because you'd plow right into it or her or him and have no clue. About a year ago, I actually hit another car during that time of day, got sued, and went to trial. The plaintiff put on countless witnesses, experts, doctors, and traffic consultants over three long days. I represented myself, no lawyer, and for my case, I took the stand and said, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, yes, I slammed right into plaintiff's car, completely acknowledged fault, but it was 7.45 a.m. You know how that morning sun glares makes it impossible to see? Well, that's exactly what happened that day. The defense rests, I said as I walked back to my seat. And that's what the defense does. It rests. I mean, you've been cross-examining witnesses, entering exhibits into evidence, approaching the bench, objecting. It takes a lot out of you. You're tired. You need to rest. So the judge started to read the jury instructions, and before the judge could finish his first instruction, the foreman stood and said, Not necessary, judge. Obviously, we find the defendant not guilty. To which the judge replied, Of course he's not guilty. What took you so goddamn long? I mean, who can see anything at that time of day? And plaintiff, for bringing such a frivolous lawsuit, I'm holding you in contempt and sanctioning your attorneys in the amount of $100,000 for wasting everyone's time on this ridiculous charade. Case dismissed. So back to my drive to work. I head through my neighborhood, get to the corner where the light's red, and I'm behind a nice Mercedes. Guy has his blinker on, so I know he's turning right, but he's not turning. 
Don't see any cars coming, so not sure why he's not turning. And while I'm in a bit of a hurry, I'm trying to be patient, not lay on the horn. But after 20 or 30 seconds go by, I'm sitting there wondering, does this Yahoo not know you can turn right on red? Because as we all know and we've all experienced, there's a decent percentage of the population who seem to have missed the memo. I mean, right on red's been around since 1980. If this guy doesn't know about right on red, what else isn't he aware of that's happened over the last 40 years? Does he know we've had two Bushes as presidents? Two Gulf Wars? Bruce is now Caitlin. Pot's legal, and while he probably doesn't know that, he's sure driving like he's stoned. So I finally toot the horn. Rip Van Winkle looks back in his rearview mirror, throws up his hands in disgust, and finally turns right. And don't you just love when some idiots get mad at you for just asking them to do what they should be doing? Oh, let's see. You didn't turn right on red. I was incredibly patient. Then I lightly beeped the horn because getting out of my car, walking up to your window, and asking if you're aware of the right on red rule in person just seemed like a little too much effort, and I'm the jagoff who controlled his road rage? So I drive on, get to another red light, look over and see two guys in a Prius, both doing what so many people in cars have an amazing comfort level with, picking their goddamn noses. It's like I'm a guest star in a bizarre episode of History Channel's American Pickers. Cars possess some magical special power instilling a sense of invisibility, allowing people to pick and dig and boulder roll, even though they're sitting in a vehicle with more windows than a beach house in Malibu. Hell, I'm surprised car salesmen haven't added that Nostradamus benefit to their sales spiel. Or as non-Jews say, spiel. They're solid with the spa, they just can't seem to get the spa sound. Don't have that Yiddish gene. And I can just hear the car salesman spiel. This baby comes with heated seats, does 0 to 60 in 2.2 seconds, and you can pick your nose under a cloak of invisibility like nobody's business. And if nose picking and all that clear glass in a car sets you free, you gotta believe airline pilots surrounded by miles of glass in that cockpit are checking out their black boxes more intently than the FAA after a crash. And how about that little descriptive term for the control center of a plane? Cockpit. Think flying's a bit of a male-dominated profession? You know back in the day, a bunch of guys' guys were sitting around pounding beers, cracking each other up, coming up with that lovely name. And you know they ran the gamut of dick jokes, calling it the dick den, the pickle pen, the rod room, the chub hub, the sausage santee, the dong house, the shaft shack, the tool tent, the meat mine, the lizard lounge, and the Johnson joint before coming to consensus on the cockpit. And guarantee you when they came up with that baby... There were more high fives than after a Hail Mary winning touchdown pass at a Dallas Cowboys game. And by the way, I'm a little tired of the whole fan high five involvement at sporting events. Was at a 49ers game last year where the Niners got the kickoff, marched downfield, and from the eight-yard line, the QB runs it in for a touchdown. The crowd goes crazy, and these two guys in front of me wearing Montana and Rice jerseys, face painted to the max, stand up, high five, and yell, Yeah, baby, we did it! We scored! We're awesome! So after the extra point, I leaned over and said, Excuse me, but you guys realize you had nothing to do with that score, right? One of the guys snaps around quickly and shouts, Hey, asshole, we cheer on our Niners. We root for our Niners. We play a key role in everything that happens on the field for our Niners. Not wanting to start a fight, I said, Okay, my bad. Fair enough. So the Niners force a punt, get the ball back, and go on offense. On the very next play, I lean forward and smack both guys right in the head. They turn around fast and yell, What the hell did you do that for, douchebag? I said, Because you fumbled. So back to the cockpit for a sec. 
Fortunately, the airline profession is starting to open up so we have more women pilots. And I long for the day when we have as many women pilots as men, when women are on completely equal status, and more importantly, hopefully we'll have more women-owned airlines and we can finally get rid of that antiquated, misogynistic term cockpit and replace it with a name that women feel comfortable with, can take pride in. You know, a place like the Vagina Vault, the Cooch Cabin, the Beaver Booth, the Poon Parlor. And as a guy, I'll be even more happy when we get rid of that awful-sounding term cockpit. Cockpit sounds like your dick's a peach with a ridged walnut-like seed painfully stuck in the middle of it like a kidney stone on steroids. Look, I've had kidney stones, so the last thing I'm yearning for is a peach pit inside my pecker. Now, fortunately, over the last few years, most airlines are trying to get more PC and are moving away from the term cockpit and calling it the flight deck. But you know the old boys' network of pilots is still sitting up in the pilot's lounge, throwing back a few cocktails right before takeoff, high-fiving as they refer to the flight deck as the flight dick. Guys are fucking idiots. And the thing is, cockpit is just one of several sophomoric, childish, humorous sex and body part names guys throughout history have come up with. The leader of the pack has to be the name a group of nerdy scientists came up with for the seventh planet from the sun, Uranus. Uranus? Really? Can't you just see these lab-coated, black-rimmed glasses, pocket protector-wearing geeks laughing their asses off when they pitched the name Uranus? You know it took the head planetologist every ounce of strength to keep a straight face while his geek gang looked on from the cheap seats as he proposed the name Uranus before the International Council of Astronomy can just hear a council member questioning the presenter. So you've pitched and we've approved Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and you want to name lucky number planet 7 Uranus? Seems a little last minute, off the cuff, like you pulled it out of your ass. And these planetologists were pretty shrewd, as Uranus wasn't the original name pitched, as they knew they'd better offer up some more risque names first to make Uranus seem okay. The first few names for the seventh planet presented on that fateful day were... Sphincteramus, Rectomania, Bungolia, and S. Adophilus. Hearing these disgusting names made Uranus seem kind of milquetoast. And these geeks were super crafty. They didn't pitch the seventh planet's name as Uranus. They tweaked the pronunciation and called it Uranus, which softened the image of a puckered pooper, and to the presenters made it even more of a hilarious double whammy as they were combining the words urine and anus to get Uranus. These geniuses brilliantly combined going number one and number two in the same celestial name. And this Beavis and Butthead naming jocularity isn't limited to Uranus. How about the name evolutionary scientists came up with for the earliest known man to have possessed modern human-like body proportions, allowing a more upright walk versus crawling on all fours? Yep, none other than our good friend Homo erectus. You don't think these scientists weren't spitting milk through their noses when one of their creative colleagues nailed that name? I can just see the presentation by paleontologist Irving Gewurz to the Archaeological Academy Society, better known as ASS. So prior to the growth of Homo erectus, there was not a lot of reproduction occurring and mankind as we know it was in grave jeopardy of extinction. This had a lot to do with weaker, less sturdy homos roaming the earth. Species like Homo flaccidus... Homo limpidicus, and Homo erectile dysfunctionis. And it was very fortuitous that at the same time Homo erectus began to get upright, a sister species developed known as Homo vaginus, because without Homo vaginus, 
Scientists theorized that the species Homo erectus would have evolved into Homo wacophis and most certainly gone the way of the dinosaur. Fortunately, Homo erectus and Homo vaginus were fantastic reproductive partners producing millions of little erectuses because after about 10,000 years, Homo vaginus grew tired of Homo erectus trying to explain why the last two minutes of every woolly mammoth hunt always took more like a half hour, thereby causing Homo vaginus to evolve into Homo I have a headachus. And evolutionists discovered that within a few short days of Homo I have a headachus transformation, Homo erectus also made a rapid genetic change and became the first in the line of present-day modern man known as Homo nobacbonus, where successful men acquiesce to anything and everything Homo vaginus slash Homo I have a headachus demands. So back to airlines for a sec. I hadn't flown in a while due to the pandemic, but things were loosening up, so I booked a flight to see my 97-year-old mom. Went online, bought the ticket, and then a few seconds later, I got the confirmation number, and I swear on my mother's life, this was the confirmation code. F-U-C-Q-E-D, which when spoken spells fucked. Let's just say I wasn't super confident my flight was going to end well. I mean, I get that these confirmation codes are auto-generated, but you think someone would have had oversight on potentially offensive codes. What's my next code going to say? S-Q-R-U-D-E? Screwed? So I figured it's a glitch, throw caution to the wind, and get on the flight. Now, I'd just come from a pot dispensary, and they were giving out 420 t-shirts, so I decided to wear the cool shirt on the plane. I walked down the walkway, entered the plane, and a flight attendant and the pilot were greeting passengers. Noticing my 420 shirt, the flight attendant winked and smiled, which I found kind of cool. Then the pilot nodded and gave me two thumbs up. So at first I'm thinking, this is great. Hip stewardess, hip pilot. And then it dawns on me, our pilot's a stoner. Is that a good thing? I've seen the movie Air Bud, just wasn't expecting to be in the live action sequel. Look, there's a huge upside of having a stoner flight attendant. She'll be doling out never-ending snacks and extra cocktails, but a stoner pilot has a downside. The two-hour flight to Phoenix took seven hours, so I guess the same snail's pace at which stone drivers drive is the same pace at which stone pilots fly. After we take off, the pilot comes on with that calm pilot voice and starts providing all that information that really isn't top of mind for me or any passenger as far as I can tell. He's sharing the weather info at our destination, which is okay, but I have a phone and can check myself. He continues on about the wind speed. What's a good wind speed? A bad wind speed? A dangerous wind speed? It's wind. Who gives a shit? I'm not a damn meteorologist, which is what they call weathermen. And you've got to admit, meteorologists sound so much more impressive than weathermen. You're a meteorologist? You know about meteors. And if one of those bastards is heading toward Earth, I'd rather know that little fact than the chance of rain is 30% this afternoon. And then the pilot lets us know, we're presently at 24,000 feet on our way to a cruising altitude of 36,000 feet. Are passengers listening intently and questioning the cruising altitude? 36,000? Why are we that high? Should we be a bit lower? 35,000 seems high enough to me. Does it make anyone feel any more confident knowing our cruising altitude? Look, if the pilot said we're presently at 19 feet on our way to a cruising altitude of 35 feet... Maybe then I'd worry. Then I'd want to know. But if we're cruising at 25,000, 30,000, 35,000, keep it between you and the cockpit gang. We don't need to know. And don't you love how these pilots, instead of simply flying the plane safely to our destination, 
They feel the need to entertain us at that somewhat scary height of 36,000 feet in this humorous, stand-up comedian kind of way, as the pilot always ends his spiel with some funny kind of comment like, so sit back, relax, and remember, get united, we'll do our best to get you there, or die trying. Oh, great, our pilot's Jim Gaffigan. Isn't that a lucky break? Hell, we could have had Carrot Top. And in terms of Carrot Top, a lot of comics don't like him because he's a prop comic. Well, I'm not a huge fan of prop comics, who am I to judge? And if Carrot Top has made a great living bringing joy to thousands of people along the way, good for him. The thing I got against Carrot Top isn't that he's a prop comic. I have trouble with his name, Carrot Top. Carrot Top calls himself Carrot Top because he has this crazy, wild, bright orange hair. Thing is, carrot tops aren't orange. Carrot tops are green. You know where the green leafy part resides that you pull the carrot out of the ground with? So I can't stand carrot top because his name makes no sense. I mean, if he called himself carrot, then maybe I'd respect him. But carrot top? What a douchebag. Anyway, back to my morning commute. I finally get past No Right Turn Ralph, past the American Pickers, and in my rearview mirror I spot Minivan Minotaur Mom, half driver, half mobile makeup artist, pretting herself during morning hour rush. You can't help but be hypnotically drawn to this ongoing blood pressure building any second disaster as Lancome Linda literally does her entire makeup, not just a minor touch-up that she could have done and should have done back in the safety and stability of her non-moving stationary home. So I'm staring in my rearview mirror fixated on this stop-and-start potential crash as Chanel Charlotte layers on foundation, primer, bronzer, blush, and has this uncanny ability to miraculously stop a millimeter short from plowing into me. And after numerous near-rear-end collisions, Mascara Mandy moves on to eyeshadow, eyeliner, eyebrow tweezing, ay 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 Look, I'd have no problem if Revlon Riva was touching up her lipstick, but Maybelline Mary's using so much product, she's wearing one of those smocks actors wear while getting done up before a shoot. And just when I think it can't get any worse, Pantene Pam plugs in a blow dryer and starts styling away as she nearly blows me away from behind. Hell, now I'm longing for that acne-faced teenager behind me who's texting and driving because he'd be a hundred times less distracted. So Clinique Clara finally finishes her makeup, her hair, and just as I'm about to breathe a sigh of relief, I hop Holly starts whipping up breakfast. She's got a bagel in one hand, spreads cream cheese on it with the other, all the while steering with her boobs. What's next? Peeling bananas and dicing strawberries as she places them into a dashboard-mounted bullet blender and frappes a goddamn smoothie? I'm just waiting for Food Network Nancy to morph into Susie Homebody, throw in a load of laundry, then wedge wet bras and panties at the top of her windows, blow-drying them in the wind. And just when I think there's nothing else Martha Stewart can't do in her miracle minivan, she reaches in the back seat, pulls her three-month-old baby to the front, and starts changing the kid's diaper faster than a sushi chef rolling a dragon roll during happy hour at Miso Hungry Sushi. Incredibly, she takes one of her boobs off the steering wheel and starts breastfeeding Junior. Look, I've sent emails while listening to boring-as-hell webinars, so I'm familiar with the concept of multitasking, but this woman takes the cake. I just hope she doesn't start baking one. And even though multitasking Martha is doing hundreds of things other than driving, the one thing she wasn't doing was watching reruns of Seinfeld. 
women I know watch Seinfeld reruns. They all watched Seinfeld in the 90s when it was must-see TV right before Friends, but they never watched the reruns. Guys, on the other hand, will watch the same Seinfeld rerun a thousand times. The other night, I'm watching the classic marine biologist episode and an ad for tampons comes on. What ad agency idiot made that moronic media buy decision? Because unless they're targeting guys who use tampons to stop nosebleeds, not one sales resulting from a tampon ad on a Seinfeld rerun. So finally, Makeup Mary turns right and is no longer following me, so huge sigh of relief as I continue on my way to work, driving through town to get to the freeway. It's fairly congested in the morning, and there is a spot where two lanes become one, creating a need to merge, and as I always do, I let people in because what goes around comes around. And whenever anyone lets me in, I do the proper universal courtesy sign, the wave. Sometimes I'll even overdo it and give a couple waves just to be extra friendly, directly to their face when they let me in, and a second wave as I look back in my rearview mirror. And most days, when I let people in, they give the wave. But recently, I've been on an incredibly bad roll, as three days in a row, I've let someone in, and no wave. And I don't know what it is about not getting the wave that changes you, strikes a nerve, taps into a primordial cord that pulsates throughout your body. You're driving along, feeling great about life. You might have had morning sex with your wife, spouse, partner, or yourself less than an hour ago. And when you let someone in and they don't give you the wave, in a split second you instantly morph from kind-hearted Dr. Jekyll into evil bloodthirsty Mr. Hyde. I think we react so strongly because these inconsiderate idiots aren't adhering to the code. I mean, there is a code, for God's sake, the rules of the road, and at the heart of the rules is the wave. You don't give the wave. It's chaos, a free-for-all, anarchy, damn demolition derby out there. So I'm at the merging point, and admittedly a little whacked out to my earlier L'Oreal Linda moment, when a guy in a BMW nudges in. So trusting karma, I let him in, and lo and behold, Beamer Boy gives me the wave. So I'm feeling much better about humanity when unbelievably this guy in a pickup truck piggybacks on Beaver Boy and edges in as well. The jerk double-dipped. Didn't follow the you-go-I-go-you-go polite merging etiquette, and instead does the you-go-you-go-I-go. This bozo doubled up, squeezing in behind the BMW like a running back following an offensive lineman's block. And what's worse, double-dipper dude didn't give me the goddamn wave. So like any normal driver, I blow a gasket. I start yelling loudly, hoping this bonehead can hear, but you know from experience he can't. This ineffective yelling is followed by intense tailgating and hand gestures, hoping the moron will see me in his rearview mirror, but of course, since he's oblivious to common courtesy and manners, he has no idea what he's done, and in this case, not done, so I'm even more pissed. Finally, the single lane turns back into two. I pull up alongside the mannerless moron at the stoplight, roll down my window and yell, Hey, buddy! You double dip back there. And more importantly, how about a little thank you, a little recognition, a little acknowledgement wave as I model the gesture with my hand. The guy looks over, raises both arms. He's a double amputee at the elbow. And in a very sincere and apologetic tone, he says, Sorry, mister, got no arms. Drive with my feet. Late for an appointment at the VA. Well, that caught me a tad off guard, but I gathered myself, calmly looked over and said, I'll give you that for the double dip, but that's your excuse for not giving the wave? Could have waved one of your nubs. Now it's this guy's turn to blow a gasket and he starts dropping F-bombs. So I interject, hey, you guys always say you don't want to be treated differently. Want to be treated the same as everyone else. That's what I'm doing. 
So next time, give the nub. At which point he yells, fuck you, asshole. And admittedly, in one of my not-so-good human kindness moments, I retort, guess you gotta go verbal on me because you can't give me the finger, which I gladly give him as the light turns green and I speed right away. So I pass one more light, enter the freeway in that merge lane, and isn't it irritating as hell when you get behind someone that doesn't get the merge concept? Look, no one expects you to go from on-ramp speed to freeway speed in a split second. But you got to be increasing your speed from 30 to 40 to 45. You can't be merging at 8, for God's sake. It's not only dangerous, but what sucks is when you get tucked in behind this merging moron and you're so close to the idiot that when you try to go around him, you can't get up enough speed so you're stuck in this kind of anti-G-force gravitational pull of Tony the Tortoise. And what makes it even more frustrating is that the cars behind you have enough room to slingshot around like top-notch NASCAR drivers Kyle Busch, Denny Hamlin, Cale Yarborough, or the late great Dick Trickle. Who, you gotta think, had to constantly wonder why his parents decided to name their bouncing baby boy Richard, knowing their last name was Trickle. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not making light of this naming, as Dick Trickle was the brunt of weekly SportsCenter jokes, and Dick had to deal with that. Trickle, by all accounts, was good-natured, notorious for his cigarette smoking even while racing, and he always took the Dick Trickle ribbing in great stride. But sadly, in 2013, Dick took his own life. Not because of the ribbing, but due to chronic pain that no doctors could find the cause of. I read this great article about Dick, and the story ended with this comment. Despite the sad ending, Trickle's NASCAR legacy will forever be one of a driver who got to the dance late, was passionate about his craft, loved to smoke, and never took himself too seriously. It was his sense of humor that connected with others. And he had that name. Oh, that name. And I gotta tell you, reading that wonderful piece made me appreciate Dick even more. But I can't help from coming back to his parents. And for all I know, they may have been the best parents ever. But don't you think parents who named their son Richard Leroy Trickle, knowing full well their kid's going to be called Dick for short, and therefore Dick Trickle when you call him by his full name, had to have a screw loose. I mean, seriously, how did that conversation between mom and dad go when deciding on a name seven or eight months into pregnancy? Honey, I want to name him one of them names that you can shorten into one syllable name, and that kind of don't make sense or flow naturally. You know, I don't want to do an easy one like Jonathan to John. I'm thinking more like Edward to Ted or Henry to Hank. Well, how about we do William to Bill? Well, that's not bad, honey, but, well, if you don't prefer William to Bill, how about Richard to Dick? Richard Trickle. Dick Trickle. Yeah, boy, no one will forget that name. And Dick Trickle reminds me of a true story that happened when my daughter was in first grade and she had a girlfriend come over for a playdate. Now, I had a full-time job at the time and wasn't involved nearly as much as my wife on the playdate circuit, and I didn't know all the kids or all the parents that well, especially other working dads like me. But I took the afternoon off and picked up the kids at school. I met the mom, Allison Ball, and her daughter, Addison Ball. We exchanged cell numbers, talked about a pickup time, and off we went back to our place. The girls and I made sugar cookies, jumped on the trampoline, and watched a few episodes of Dora the Explorer. So, it was getting close to dinner time, and the phone rang, and I said, Hi, this is Doug. And I was kind of expecting it to be Allison on the other end of the phone, but a man answered who said, Hi, Doug, it's Harry Ball. 
I kid you not. Again, I swear on my kids' lives. He said, it's Harry Ball. Harry fucking Ball. So being a childish male idiot, not the sharpest tool in the shed, I figured it's a prank call, burst out laughter and said, Harry Ball? Oh my God, that's one of the best ever. Who is this? Is this Joey? Suddenly the tone changes and he says, My name is Harold Ball, but I prefer Harry for short. I'll be picking up Addison in ten minutes. Right about then, I knew my days as a playdate parent were coming to an abrupt end, and boy, did I feel like a real dick. Trickle. And while Dick Trickle's name takes the cake, let's not forget about Cale Yarborough for a second. Cale is only one of two drivers in NASCAR history to win three consecutive championships, winning in 76, 77, and 78. He was one of the preeminent stock car drivers from the 60s to the 80s. His 83 wins tie him with Jimmy Johnson for six on the all-time NASCAR Cup Series. But I doubt many of you know that Kale left race car driving at the peak of his sport as he grew tired of the never-ending redneck diet of meat, meat, and more meat. And Kale became a steadfast, hardcore vegetarian and farmer, given credit for cross-pollinating and inventing that green leafy supercharged veggie, Kale, that he named after himself. And although Kale Yarborough's first name begins with a C, he decided to begin the vegetable Kale with the letter K after he heard that 1877 cars for kids K A R S cars for kids commercial Kale was so enamored with the replacement of the letter C with the letter K in the cars for kids jingle that a few years later he pitched NASCAR on the idea of changing the letter C in NASCAR to the letter K but NASCAR declined stating that in their product marketing testing not one NASCAR fan eats kale plus a high percentage already think NASCAR spelled with a K and back to Tony the tortoise literally crawling in front of me as I tried to merge onto the freeway. I should have known this turtle wasn't going to be an expert merger when I looked more closely and saw his personalized license plate read GEPA. G-E-E-P-A-H. I assume GEPA is one of those cute names for a grandpa, and trust me, you're not going to be moving quickly behind a driver who has the license plate GEPA. GEPA is not a name rooted in speed. It's a name rooted in backing out of a crowded mall parking lot without ever once looking back or leaving a left turn signal on all the way from Manhattan to Miami. And seeing this old grandpa in front of me, I realized something. I realized my biggest fear in life. It's not dying, getting cancer, or coming down with some terrible, horrible, debilitating disease like Alzheimer's. My biggest fear is that I live long enough to become a shitty driver. And like the inevitability of death and taxes, becoming a shitty driver happens. You might not think it's going to happen to you, but it's going to happen. Right now, I still drive aggressively. I give the wave when someone lets me in, maintain proper speed merging onto the freeway, use my signals correctly and don't leave them blinking for hundreds of miles. But I'm starting to see a few chinks in the armor. It starts slowly. First, you don't drive as fast as you once did. You don't zig, you don't zag. You don't cut in and out of traffic like a crazed New York cabbie. Next, you'll get stuck in the slow lane and don't immediately feel the need to get out of it. In fact, you rather enjoy the comforting pace. And a few years later, your night vision starts to get so iffy, you're not sure if the car approaching you at 10 p.m. is a car or an alien spaceship. Let's face it, you don't see a ton of good drivers in their 80s. We've all seen them. Guys behind the wheel wearing a plaid British racing cap, thick black-rimmed Coke bottle glasses, 
handicapped placard hanging from the rearview mirror? And your first thought isn't, I bet this guy can really handle a car. Even great Formula One and NASCAR drivers in their youth, guys like Jackie Stewart, Emerson Fittipaldi, Richard Petty, now that they're old, they suck too. Can you imagine how depressing it must be for one of these champion race car drivers to have a wet-behind-the-ears, acne-faced teenager flip them the bird and stick the knife in their cholesterol-filling heart by yelling out, Eat my dust, G-Paw! So I finally break free from slow-mo, slow-mo, and I'm cruising on the freeway when after like 30 seconds, up ahead is one of those cops driving in that swerving serpentine maneuver, slowly sweeping back and forth across all the lanes as traffic forms behind him in a V pattern, like we're geese following the lead goose on a winter migratory mission. And it's odd, as this side-to-side sweep deal seems to happen to me every few months, and every time it happens, there's never anything to see up there. There's never a reason. The cop will be serpentining for a mile or two, then suddenly just moves to the far right and turns off the exit. After this two-mile intentional slowing down of traffic control deal, you expect to see some gruesome 20-car pileup or a hazardous waste spill, but you never come upon an accident or a people even in hazmat suits. So after this little charade, I always feel like I've been taking part in a quarterly state patrol serpentine training session, where the cops illustrating the clueless drivers the telltale signs of driving under the influence or I've simply gotten stuck behind a bored-as-hell cop lightening up his day by playing a traffic prank on unfortunate drivers simply because he can. So, after like two and a half miles, sure enough, just like always, no accident, no chemical spill, no road construction, and the cop just exits. I assume to meet with his cop buddies at Dunkin' Donuts for a detailed joke-ridden description of his toe-the-line, chorus-line serpentine. And of course, no sooner after he exits, a few hotheads fly by me, racing each other, easily exceeding 100 miles an hour. And it's times like this when I find it really hard to believe there's a god. Because if there's a god, why aren't there ever cops around to pull these reckless assholes over? Or how many times do you see a drunk driver swerving all over the road and you never see a cop? Or how about those idiots running red lights way after the lights turned red and never a cop within miles to snag these schmucks? And then there's my favorite idiot who clearly sees that if he keeps going, he's going to block the intersection, but he pulls forward and sure enough, his light turns red, yours turns green, but you can't go because this jerk-off stuck in no man's land. I'm not a very religious guy, but if cops started nailing these irritating and dangerous law-breaking drivers, I'd be the first in line to purchase front-row high holiday tickets at Temple Beth Sholem Sholem, gladly stick out my tongue at Father Flanagan savoring a tasteless communion wafer, eagerly fast 40 days of Ramadan, or willingly shave my head, don a silk bathrobe, and hand out books and flowers at airports to show my unwavering faith in every one of all the almighties. And as more nut jobs zoom by me at warp speed, I look over and see a 65-mile-an-hour speed limit sign, and below the number it says, Speed Radar Enforced. And I'm thinking, what a relief to know the exact method the cops are using to enforce speeding. Good to know they're using radar. I was under the impression they were using a cheetah running alongside or a doped-up, steroid-filled, yellow Livestrong bracelet-wearing bullshit artist Lance Armstrong biking on the shoulder to catch speeders. And back to God for a sec. Most people, right or wrong, believe God's a man. Now, clearly, I have my doubts there's a God based on God's lack of traffic enforcement. But if we assume there is a God, albeit one that has little disregard for reckless and dangerous drivers, and if God's a man... 
Maybe he played favorites taking care of his brethren, you know, the male sex of the species, by definitely giving women the tougher road to hoe. I can just see God talking to Adam in a quiet, whispering voice. Look, Adam, I'm going to tell you something, but you got to keep it a secret from Eve, because if she finds out, you and I are going to be in the proverbial doghouse, and the dog spelled backwards is God doghouse. Or would that be the Godhouse? Anyway. So to make it look like I'm not playing favorites, I'm going to give you a lot more facial hair than Eve, so you'll have to endure the discomfort and pain in the ass of shaving every day. I'm going to give you this apple-like thing that protrudes from your neck, but it's really more like the size of a grape, but by calling it an apple, it sounds more intimidating. And last, I'm going to give you these horrible, terrible things called testicles that are nasty to look at, and they hang precariously between your legs, and you're going to act like shaving. Enduring an apple knee grape in your neck and hanging gonads are incredibly challenging and exhausting to deal with. See, because then I'm going to give Eve a few doozies like yucky monthly periods, the task of childbearing with excruciating contractions while your role is simply to remind her to breathe, like she's somehow going to forget to breathe. And you can bet your ass I'll be laughing my balls off at that little Lamaze class training protocol. Next, I'm going to give her this incredible doubt and insecurity about the size of her ass. And last but not least, she'll not only have to look at your ugly dangling testicles, she'll have to feel them bang against her vagina as you guys have sex. Ooh, it's a man's world, Adam. So based on these inequalities and differences, there does seem to be some rationale for the idea that God is a man. But then when I step back a sec and think about it, I start having serious doubts. Look, what's clearly the most important thing to a man? It's not beer. It's not sports. It's not farts. It's sex. And the thing is, unless you're 18 or a freak of nature porn star, men have one orgasm and they're done for hours, days, or at my age, weeks or months. Women, on the other hand, can keep coming and going and coming and going like the Energizer Bunny. Women can come 20 times in an hour, as long as they have enough batteries or a fully charged backup generator. Look, if God gave this ability to man... Every guy in the world would gladly park a semi-truck full of tampons in his driveway, hire a full-time midwife to help him with childbearing, line our walls with funhouse mirrors that make our asses look like the world-record half-moon bay two-ton pumpkin, and gladly pull and stretch our own horrible hanging hairy balls downward and slam them against our own horrible hairy buttholes. And I gotta tell you, even though it would piss the crap out of men, you give us never-ending orgasms and we'll gladly take 73 cents on the dollar at work. Hell, we get the multiple orgasm deal, we'll work for free. And maybe this is where God was really smart. Because let's face it, you give guys multiple orgasm potential, nothing, I mean nothing, would have gotten done from the day God made man and gave him that special power. Guys would think they're superheroes with superpowers. Here I come to save the day. Coming men can spray and spray. So, if sex is the most important thing for a man, and God gave women the multiple orgasm gift, maybe Jesus is actually Josie. And while many of you believe God is a man, and some of you believe God is a woman, I still have made your doubts there's a God, and you'll have to look as far as the first book of the Bible to understand my doubt. Genesis starts off with, In the beginning, on day one, God created light. Day two, the sky. Day three, the land and the sea. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, animals, fish, and birds. 
On day six, finally humans made in the image of God, and on day seven, God rested. Kind of like I did after presenting my morning sun in the eye defense. So basically, in essence, God was the first and most prolific general contractor, building a massive home with a little remodeling and a few upgrades along the way. And like many of you, we've done a few remodels at our house, expanded a bathroom, updated the kitchen, redid the patio, and not one time on any of these projects has the contractor been that efficient, gotten things done on time. Hell, if you're like me, you can barely get them to show up. So Ralph's roofing took three months to redo my roof, and God did what he did in six days? What contractor has ever completed a project in six days? So creation is evidence of God? Not so sure I'm buying it. On the other hand, I guess that's why God's God. And if he or she really did the job in six days, it sure would be great if God was still in the GC business, and wouldn't GC be a great name for God's company? You know, GC, God's contracting. I mean, can you imagine hiring God? Hey, thanks for coming by, God. My neighbor Ed says you do good work. So, uh, God, my wife wants to knock out a few walls, add in some beams, and raise the roof to open up the living room with some nice high ceilings. How long do you think that would take you? God grabs a pencil, jots down a few notes, and says, Well, let's see. Took me a day to build the sun, the moon, and the stars. You want a little height in the living room? I'd say seven, eight seconds? That work for you? And back to the creation story for a sec. Don't you find it a bit odd that God created light on day two, but the sun, which gives us light, was created on day four? Sounds like a little gap in the Genesis story where God had to run to Home Depot to pick up a generator as a temporary power source until he created the sun. So yeah, God's the Almighty, but the Almighty's not so mighty at planning, timing, or scheduling. And my last thought on this God creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh story is that in Judaism, God finished the work and rested on Saturday, and in Catholicism, God finished working and rested on Sunday. So I don't know whether God finished on a Saturday or a Sunday, but I'm glad as hell the Judeo-Christian combo couldn't agree on the day because this uncertainty of God's exact rest day gave us a two-day weekend. Thank fucking God. So meanwhile, back on the freeway, I cruise north on 101, jump on the Richmond Bridge, and just as I turn on to 80 East, my drive slows to a crawl in a typically ugly bumper-to-bumper Bay Area morning commute traffic. And after all the earlier delays just getting to the freeway, I'm getting cranky because I got a big meeting with my boss to discuss a long overdue raise. And I'm stuck behind this massive Range Rover that looks like the genetic offspring of a Hummer and a Jeep Cherokee, when all of a sudden, Range Rover guy starts cleaning his windshield by spraying the fluid, and of course, the fluid flies back over his Rover's roof, splattering my windshield. Now, you'd think you'd be happy getting free excess fluid on your windshield, but you don't want his fluid on your car, and now you're bummed because you got to wash his vehicle's body fluids off your splattered windshield using wiper fluid you weren't planning on using. Look, we've all heard of that positive karma thing, paying it forward, but this isn't paying it forward, it's spraying it backwards. And it's rude. It reminds me of when you're sitting with your feet dangling in a pool on a hot summer day and little Johnny jumps in next to you and you're splashed with microscopic, irritating, painful, spritzy droplets. You'd think it would feel refreshing, cooling you off in the scorching sun. But it's like being waterboarded by a toddler. 
Now, there is one time I could use some back spray hitting my car. Last week, I drove my son round trip from San Francisco to Santa Barbara, total of about 650 miles. And on that trip, must have had at least 250 insects splatter my windshield and the front end. That was just my car. Multiply that number by thousands of drivers, and that's a lot of bug gunk sticking to vehicles. Looked it up and found out that 3.3 billion bugs are killed per month on the license plates alone. The front of the car is at least 40 times as large as the surface of the plate. This means that cars hit around 133 billion insects every month. In half a year, that's 800 billion insects, or 1.6 trillion every year in the U.S. alone. So vehicles kill close to 2 trillion bugs every year. And kind of like how scientists claim every snowflake's unique, and we just accept it because there's no goddamn way to really prove that, how do we know these freeway bug death statistics are real? Who, and how do these who, study this? Is there really that level of microgeek scientists whose dream job is to examine and analyze different parts of the car and the corresponding number of dead bugs splattered across them? How does that happen? How does your life take that turn? And once you're on that freeway bug death analytics path, what do these freaks actually do? Drive around for weeks collecting and counting the number of bugs splattered on their license plates versus windshields, that's especially as I've heard the license plates researchers want nothing to do with the windshield or front bumper insect splatter people, God forbid. Look, it's one thing to be a storm chaser driving around in a souped-up cargo van, which in itself is cuckoo birdville, but I get the adrenaline rush of driving into a tornado. But you've truly lost it if driving around killing and counting insects from various car parts gets your heart pumping. And let's come back to that number for a sec. 1.6 trillion dead bugs. Some perspective. There's only 7.9 billion people in the entire world. And remember, 1.6 trillion are just the dead bugs for one year in one country. One can conclude, therefore, there's gazillions more we don't kill. Based upon the numbers, if I'm an insect, I'm mobilizing the troops and taking over the world. But that assumes these little creatures have their brains to pull that off and not seeing it from past experience. First, why are these little buggers flying over a cement asphalt highway with no trees, grass, or food supply? Second, if you're going to fly across an interstate, why are you flying at that height? Pull up on the throttle at head and get above the deadly vehicle fray. So after agonizing encounters with Makeup Mary, No Wave Nubby, and Windshield Washing Willie, I glance over to my right and see a beautiful new Porsche, a car length ahead of me. Now, I'm not a huge car guy, but I'm driving an 11-year-old maroon Honda Insight with a bastion front bumper and a side view mirror hanging on with gray duct tape, and the mirror has written on it, objects in mirror are laughing at you, so I do occasionally have nice car envy. And as I pull alongside, I see this beautiful middle-aged woman, and I had to do a double-take. Wipe my eyes, shake my head, and verify her beauty, because I'm a little gun-shy when I first glance over and see what I believe to be a hot-looking woman in the car next to me. As many, many times at first glance, I think I see this hot babe, and when I pull alongside and look again, she somehow turns out to be this freak show combo bearded lady slash elephant man slash Wizard of Oz wicked witch, all the while digging for gold-picking boogers from her nasty beak nose. The worst was one time a car sped by me with what I perceived to be this gorgeous woman, and when I caught up to her at the light, she was literally flossing her teeth with a long piece of her disgusting stringy hair, hair that was still attached to her dandruff-laden head. 
I have no idea what causes my eyesight and all men's eyesight to be that distorted during the woman-in-a-car drive-by scenario. Doesn't happen when we glance over and see a dog in a car. We pull alongside, the dog looks like the dog we thought we saw. The cute Labrador Retriever looks like a retriever. It doesn't change from a cute pup into a three-legged, one-eyed, rabbit, American hairless, terrier, pit bull, chihuahua mix. And women have a similar visual deficiency, just not in cars, but in bathrooms. In our house, my wife and I use separate bathrooms. My wife uses the one in our bedroom. I use the kids since they're at college. And religiously, she gives me grief that my bathroom's a pigsty. The sink's messy. The shower door isn't squeegeed clean. Thing is, I'm pretty damn clean for a guy. I'm not gay guy clean, but I don't like a messy house. So while my wife rails on me for not having a pristine bathroom, when I go into hers, oh my God, there's more makeup products strewn about there than the makeover counter at Nordstrom's. Suddenly, it dawns on me. I live with Makeup Mary. And then there's the blow dryers, curling irons, lint roller removers. And what about the hair? Strands of her hair. Everywhere. In the sink. On the floor. On the back of the toilet. Stuck to walls. And here's the kicker. Plastered on the goddamn ceiling. And unfortunately, her flying follicles are similar in length and texture to drive-by flossing flora, so I gotta relive that horrifying image every morning. I can only imagine how much hair is stuck to Minivan Mom's roof interior after years of mobile blow-dries. There's got to be enough hair plastered to that ceiling to weave a macrame sweater for a patient on TLC's My 600-Pound Life. And while this beautiful woman drive-by mirage is pretty much a guy thing, all of us suffer from a trick another body part, besides our eyes, plays on us, our hands. We all turn on the shower, let it warm up a bit, then reach in with our hand to get a temperature gauge. It's a little hot, so you turn it down, hand test again, feels perfect. You disrobe, step in the shower, and the water that greets your naked, unprotected raw body is a scalding, boiling hot, lava-like liquid that causes you literally to jump back away and immediately turn it down to the temperature your hands inaccurately transmitted to your brain seconds ago. It's like your hands are playing some kind of biological, anatomical, practical joke on the rest of your body. They're saying, sure, get in, it's perfect. And when you do, your hands suddenly become Linda Blair and the Exorcist shouting, the rest of your body parts suck cocks in hell, you faithless slime. What did the rest of our body do to our hands that made our hands so damn evil? I mean, women get revitalizing manicures, guys whack off. We give these wonderful pleasures to our hands and they pay us back by scorching the rest of our body parts with a scalding shower subterfuge. And the shower is the location of other bizarre temperature games. While you're showering, someone else jumps in another shower in the house, someone starts a load of laundry, someone runs the dishwasher, and you're now an unwilling participant in this uncontrollable, intermittent, freezing, hot, freezing, hot, torture game. And while that's annoying, the worst is when my wife flushes the toilet while I'm showering, and that little flush suddenly shoots scalding, hot, streaming liquid onto my naked, unsuspecting body. Just once, I love it to work in reverse, so that when my wife sits on the toilet to pee, and I turn up the hot water in the shower, the water in the bowl instantly freezes into a large oval ice cube, giving her ass frostbite. And I had an odd and kind of scary moment the other day in the shower. You know how every once in a while you turn on the shower, hot and cold dials, get it right and start your shower? At some point it may get a little too hot or a little too cold. 
And so you just have to go adjust one of the dials and you completely blow it and turn the knob the wrong way and it either makes it boiling or freezing. And you can't correct it immediately. And it kind of freaks you out. Because you wonder, could this be a bad case of amnesia, the onset of dementia, or God forbid, Alzheimer's? I mean, you've been taking showers in your house for 20 plus years, so you got it down pat. You know the system, the little tweaks and turns. And then without any rhyme or reason, you have no idea how your knobs work. You're utterly bewildered. So you practice a few times and you don't get it right immediately, which is disconcerting, but your brain reboots and you turn off the shower without further skin or emotional damage. Thing is, this quandary kind of stays with you that day and all the way up to your next shower. And only after you've mastered it again can you actually breathe a sigh of relief and relax. And back to that odd phrase, without any rhyme or reason. If something happens or is done without rhyme or reason, that means there's no logical reason for it to happen or be done. I get the reason half, but when did Dr. Seuss become a key component of logic? For instance, in this example, when you suddenly blank on which direction controls the hot and cold shower handles, the reason could be fatigue, concussion, bad hangover, brain fart. But what would the rhyme be? Got into the shower during the early morning hour? Forgot how to control each knob? Confusion made my head throb? Got the reason but need a silly-ass rhyme, clearly getting old, way past my prime. Woo! Glad I came up with that rhyme, because without the rhyme, the whole shower handle temperature control mental lapse would have made no sense at all. So back on the freeway. I close my eyes, open them, look over, hoping, praying, and for the first time in forever, my initial glance matches up with my second verification glance, and this woman is indeed drop-dead gorgeous. Which, when you think about it, is an amazing phenomenon that a woman could be so gorgeous, you see her, and drop dead. I thought Medusa's superpower of looking at her and turning you into stone was impressive, but becoming a statue ain't to the level of drop-dead. Close, but not drop-dead. Look, I've seen some of the most beautiful women in the world. Breathtaking, stunning knockouts. And I guess knockouts would be the closest thing to drop dead gorgeous as one look and you're knocked out, but you're still alive. You're getting smelling salts, might be on a stretcher in an ambulance, may not remember your name, but you're alive. You haven't dropped dead. Can you imagine a woman so beautiful that you look at her and right there on the spot, you drop dead? And you hear the term drop-dead gorgeous somewhat often, so it's not like there's this one rare super-powered killing queen bee out there. There's a number of drop-dead gorgeous women milling about. And how do these women deal with that? Can you imagine the first time it happens? You might think you're good-looking. You might know you're good-looking. You might even be so good-looking you've got that bitchy, snobby, no-smiling model attitude. But how many of the most beautiful, perfect tens in the world would really think their looks can cause a guy to keel over right in front of them? The first time it happens, this hottie can't be thinking he died because of my sheer beauty. You're probably in your late teens, early 20s, when you get a sense that you're that stunning. So the first time it happens, you're fairly young and immature, and the only rational explanation you can have is that the poor bastard had a sudden heart attack. There's no way you could fathom your prom date dropped dead because you're so friggin' hot. You could see how this guy could be nervous, sweating, stammering, peeing his pants, but dead? Uh-uh. But what about the second time, the third time, and then the fourth time this happens? You've got to be going, what the fuck? What are the percentages every guy who looks at me dies? Literally dies. 
Doesn't get sick, doesn't get an illness, not a cough, not a fever, not cancer, not COVID, just drops dead, bang, over. How do these women continue to go out in public? You're one of the most beautiful women in the world and you'd have to live as a shut-in. And back to prom for a sec. Mine did not go well. See, I took a girl named Carrie. Seemed like a nice girl and the date started off great. Picked her up, met her folks, pinned on her corsage, took a few photos of Carrie in her prom dress and me in my rented tux, and off we went. We danced a few dances, had a few laughs, and then unbelievably, we got announced as the prom king and queen. Wow! So we headed up on stage, and out of nowhere from above, a huge bucket of pig blood, I repeat, pig blood, rained down on both of us, and the empty bucket fell, nailing me right in the noggin. I was caught off guard, and I wasn't too happy with everyone laughing at us, but hey, it's prom, and people play pranks. So I tried to laugh it off. Well, let's just say that my date, Carrie, wasn't one to roll with the punches. She was pissed. Fire-breathing pissed. Literally. It took a while, but I finally calmed her down after she used her telekinetic powers to burn the school to the ground. So I washed as much of the pig blood officer as I could, got her in the limo, took her home, drove myself home, and went to bed. And you think that was the end of my hellish prom night? Nope. Because the next day when I returned the tux, you know the one that was dripping with pig blood? Let's just say I didn't get back my $300 deposit. The whole experience was bloody fucking hell. So back to the woman in the Porsche. She's gorgeous, but fortunately not drop-dead gorgeous, as I'm still able to man the wheel. And as I take a second glance, the first thing that catches my eye is her sheeny, shiny, blonde hair. You know the kind wealthy people have? It looks like long, thick, golden wheat flowing from her head to her shoulders. And you never see that level of perfect hair on homeless people. Their hair's always ratty, dull. Like if you touched it, oily clumps would pull off their age-spotted, dandruff-speckled, psoriasis-flaked Reverend Jim from taxi scalps and stick your hands in that cobwebby way that you can't shake off. Not so for Penelope Porsche. This woman had it all. Shiny, wealthy hair, perfect skin, makeup clearly applied at her house hours before as opposed to while driving like our Maybelline minivan Minotaur mom earlier that morning. Penelope's hair and her Porsche have the exact same sheen and shine. She's probably early 40s, but looks early 30s, maybe late 20s. You know this goddess has a personal trainer, full-time chef, and two white toy poodles, Fifi and Frou-Frou, who do drink out of the toilet, but only after the butler places a slice of lemon in it. I'm in heaven, and my crawling commute doesn't matter one bit, and I kind of hope there's an overturned oil tanker a few miles ahead, with emergency responders in hazmat suits, the jaws of life chomping away, flares strewn along the shoulder, helicopters circling above like during the O.J. White Bronco chase, or at the very least, one of those serpentining cops weaving back and forth across the freeway so we're stuck in traffic for days. And if picture-perfect Penelope and her Porsche aren't enough... When I pull alongside, I do a second double take, because in the passenger seat is another equally hot babe. Only she's a brunette, same socioeconomic group as evidenced by the shiny, sheeny brown hair, perfect makeup, but she's younger by what looks to be like about 10 years, so she's probably 28 to 32. I can't believe my luck, and I've never been happier stuck in traffic. And just when I thought it couldn't get any better... The hot passenger seat babe leans over and, I swear on my kids' lives, starts massaging the driver's shoulders. 
And then to my utter amazement and unbridled joy, she gently caresses those shiny, sheeny strands of golden wheat to the side and starts kissing the driver on the neck and then on the goddamn lips as I start making out. I feel like I'm watching a knockoff of Seinfeld's comedian in Cars Getting Coffee called Porn Stars and Porsches Getting Naughty. I'm on a jam-packed freeway with two of the sexiest women I've ever seen less than 10 feet away in a Porsche, lock-lipped, making out. I glanced up to the heavens and even though I haven't believed in God for years, shouted, thank you God for dropping this wealthy lesbian miracle into my lap. Now I know I've been a bad Jew, God. I've doubted you, used your name in vain way more than I should have, blown off the high holidays more times than a rabbi with a meth addiction. But this sign, this image, not one burning bush, but two, is more than proving your existence to me, and I promise to atone for my past sins and purchase front row tickets to Yom Kippur services, plant tons of trees all across Israel, and I will religiously abide by the ninth commandment and stop coveting my neighbor's wife. In all honesty, God, never been much of a coveter, but if I was going to covet, that's over with. No coveting. All I ask, God, is just please keep me in this traffic jam for eternity. And God must have heard my plea because the kissing kept going. Lips, open mouth, tongue, when suddenly I realized their lane was ending and they needed to merge in front of me. So I let them in, and of course, no wave. And while that could have easily annoyed me, I felt God was teaching me the importance of virtue and patience. So no yelling, no flipping the bird, letting bygones be bygones. But who are we kidding? If the no-wave came from some British racing-capped Mercedes-driving, no-right-turn-on-red, god-awful, lame-ass-merging Jeepa, Mr. Hyde would have unleashed his road-rage fury in a heartbeat. But how mad can you get a two gorgeous, yet fortunately not drop-dead, wealthy Porsche-driving lesbians? And no sooner had the porno Porsche merged when a large, wide, liquidy spray of windshield wiper fluid flies back from the Porsche, splattering my window in this metaphoric, suggestive sexual explosion that was imminently probable in my pants. Like the no-wave, I could have gotten angry about the spritzy droplets, but why hold a grudge? Again, God stepping in and sending me a cosmic chill pill. It's windshield wiper fluid. Chemically induced blue water that cleans off dead bugs and dirt sprayed back lovingly from the top-of-the-line lesbian Porsche so I want to be thankful and embrace this generous spritz. Now again, I get sprayed from a putz in an 87 Toyota Corolla, might not have the same reaction. And just as I wipe off the first spray, here comes round two, multiple explosions, something men can only dream about when it comes to spraying their fluid. And perhaps it was the second spray of spritz that shocked me with this horrible, earth-shattering, debilitating realization. My goddamn exit was approaching. Oops, sorry God for the name in vain thing again. It's a habit that'll take a little time to break, but I think even you, the Almighty, can see why I used your name in vain at this very critical juncture of life. And don't forget, God, I told you earlier I was giving up coveting, and sure, I realize the name in vain thing is number two and coveting is number nine on God's top ten list. Da-na-na, da-na-na. But you've got to start somewhere, right? Anyway, so in that diabolical quandary... God, he or she, put me in to test my loyalty, I realize there are those few critical life-changing choices that can forever impact the course of your life's trajectory. Do I sleep with my first and only platonic girlfriend in one of those Harry Met Sally moments? Or if you're gay, one of those Harry Met Harry moments? Or do I choose the friendship over the sex? Do I rent a new release movie at my hotel while on a business trip that my wife's been dying to see? Or do I wait to see it with her when I get home? Do I masturbate while my wife's passed out next to me when I'm wide awake and horny? 
Give sex with a friend, movie rentals, and awkwardly timed masturbation aren't necessarily life-changing moments, but I have zero willpower, so I slept with my platonic friend, rented the movie, and did slap the carrot, not the carrot top, dumbass douchebag name, as my wife caught some Z's. So here I am again, smack dab in one of those life-changing decision-making moments. Do I take the exit, meet my boss to get a big raise, or do I throw caution to the wind and follow the porno Porsche when suddenly I'm blinded by the same kind of early morning sunlight glaring in my rearview mirror, literally making it impossible to see? So I slam on my brakes, get rear-ended, which pushes my car forward into the car in front of me. Crap. Shit. Fuck. And not about the accident. Crap. Shit. Fuck. There goes the porno Porsche pinging down the freeway into oblivion. I looked toward the heavens and in my boiling anger said, You were this goddamn close, God, to getting me to buy those goddamn front row high holiday tickets and plant goddamn trees all over goddamn Israel. No goddamn way that's happening now, God. And I'm immediately starting to covet. My neighbor's wife, my neighbor's dog, wealthy Porsche driving lesbians. I'm coveting like nobody's business. So I calm down, gather myself, and summon up every ounce of strength to deal with the upcoming hateful exchange of license and insurance dance. I get out, start walking towards the car that hit me from behind, when unbelievably, I see the car that hit me from behind wasn't a car, but a van. Yep, no shit. Minivan, Minotaur makeup, mom. And guess what? Yep, she's still in the front seat, fumbling with her damn makeup when I'm blinded a second time by the same laser beam and realize it's the reflection from Minivan Minotaur Makeup Mom's compact makeup mirror. I can't make this shit up. So I do a quick assessment of my car and continue on towards the van when out of nowhere, I'm poked in the back with what I perceive to be a broom handle or a cane. So I turn and say, hey, douchebag, when I see it's none other than, yep, no shit, no wave nubby. And in one cosmic karma fell swoop, He starts battering my head with his nubs like those asinine thundersticks fans use at sporting events when Nubby shouts, Wave this, motherfucker! Then bashes me in both eyes with both nubs. Whoa, bud, what are you doing? To which he snidely replies, Just taking your brilliant advice and waving at you with my nubs and making sure you get treated like every other condescending asshole on the planet because wouldn't want you jerk-offs feeling different, right? I'm literally in shock when No Wave Nubby raises both nubs straight up and says, Just think of these as two of the biggest flipping the bird signs you'll ever see, douchebag, as Nubby heads back to his pickup. I'm stunned, frozen, can't move, and to add insult to injury, No Wave Nubby shoots window washer fluid back over his pickup, hitting me smack dab in the eyes as the sting shoots through me like an electric current. I look up towards the sky and like that epic point of view shot of Captain Kirk in the movie Wrath of Khan, instead of yelling, Khan, I yelled, Nubby! So I'm writhing in pain, blinded, when I hear, those are some nasty black and blue shiners you got there, but don't worry, hon, got tons of concealer back in the van, make you look good as new in a heartbeat. Squinting through my burned out retina eyeballs, I see minivan minotaur makeup mom has miraculously extricated herself from her crash cab, toddler still glued to her cream cheese covered teat as she leads me by the hand back to her magic makeover mobile. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat and minivan makeup minotaur mom is working her magic on my shiners and I'm trying to remain calm but I guess the accident, 
the eyeball battering from Nubby, and especially the loss of the porno Porsche has taken its toll, so I snap and launch into a tirade. You know, you were right behind me all the way from town this morning, and the entire time you were behind me, until thank God you turned, you're doing your makeup, blow-drying your hair, breastfeeding Junior, eating a goddamn Denny's Grand Slam breakfast, and what's even more amazing is that after 30 miles, you're still putting on makeup as your compact mirror shot a laser beam into my eyes. Why don't you just do that in the safety and comfort of your home like normal people instead of putting the entire driving public at risk? Well, the van got awful quiet. Minivan mom put down her makeup, stared back at me with these sad, longing eyes. So I sighed, took a deep breath and said, Look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. See, I was just following this amazing lesbian porno Porsche mobile and on my way to a big meeting where I was likely to get a raise and now I've lost the porno Porsche my raises in the shitter, and good chance my retina are permanently damaged. Minivan Mom smiled, laughed, and said, Oh, never you mind, sugar, I get it. We all have bad days. I know it'll get your mind right. You do, I asked. And I kid you not, Minivan Minotaur Makeup Mom reached into a bag, grabbed an everything bagel, sliced it, scooped some cream cheese, regular, not the reduced fat kind, right off her semi-exposed boob, slathered the boob cheese on the bagel, placed both halves together, and handed it to me. At that point, I couldn't very well stay pissed off. So I grabbed the bagel and said, You wouldn't happen to have any locks, would you? To which she replied, Darling, got a whole shitload of locks in the cooler smack dab under your seat. To which I replied, Of course you do. You are the minivan minotaur makeup mom, for God's sake. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Berg's Brain and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, and guitar legend Jeff Peapod Miller. Thanks to the incredibly talented Berg's Brain graphic designer, Claire Skilperwort. And if you like Berg's Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out our website at bergsbrain.buzzsprout.com. And if you want to touch base, email me at bergsbrainpod at gmail.com. Peapod, play us out on your new hit single, Steering Wheel Bop, that's all the rage in Barcelona, Bangkok, and Beverly Hills. Beep, beep, and beep, beep, yeah! Mm-hmm.